Hello and welcome to the CRN Spotlight Podcast, highlighting the efforts of the AMSSM Collaborative Research Network as it seeks to improve communication with the general membership and sports medicine community. As a means of doing this, we will highlight some of the great literature in sports and exercise medicine. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to have two juggernauts in the sports medicine community, Dr. Jonathan Dresner and Dr. Kimberly Harmon from the University of Washington. Uh, Dr. Dresner, just by way of introduction, holds positions as a UW professor, director of the UW Medicine Center for Sports Cardiology, and team physician for the Seattle Sighthawks and the OL Reign in the NWSL. He is a current editor-in-chief for the British Journal of Sports Medicine and is a past AMSSM president. Dr. Harmon is also a UW professor and head team physician for the Huskies football team. She served as fellowship program director at University of Washington for 10 years and was on the AMSSM board of directors and executive board for many years and is also an AMSSM uh, past president. My name is Jeremy Schroeder. I am the host for this podcast today, and i just like to say welcome, Dr. Dresner and Dr. Harmon. Thanks for having us, Jeremy. Thanks. It's great to be so, here. It's, it's so great having you guys. And you two, along with uh, Dr. Aaron Baggish from Harvard University, are on, one of the recipients of the 2020 AMSSM CRN Research Grant, which you have used to establish the Outcomes Registry for Cardiac Conditions in Athletes, or the ORCA study. Now, the initial findings were presented by Dr. Dresner at the annual AMSSM meeting and subsequently published in the American Heart Association Journal Circulation, entitled SARS-CoV-2 Cardiac Involvement in Young Competitive Athletes. So first off, Dr. Dresner, what can you tell us about this registry? What makes it unique? And what was the catalyst for establishing it? Yeah, thanks again, Jeremy. That's a really good question. You know, the ORCA registry, you know, we're very grateful to receive funding from AMSSM and the CRN uh, grant to be able to establish the, the ORCA registry. The original vision goes back before COVID. And the idea behind the ORCA registry was to establish a, a database of athletes who are diagnosed with pathologic cardiac conditions and to follow them over time to understand more about what the long-term outcomes are. So for instance, take conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where there is controversy, whether or not those athletes should return to play or not. And, and to be able to monitor athletes that are both restricted from play or perhaps allowed to play and understand more about their long-term outcomes. So, so the original vision of that ORCA registry is still something that we're going to move towards in sort of what has become phase two of the ORCA registry. Phase one, we were sort of forced to pivot and we pivoted towards the COVID-19 pandemic, recognizing that um, there are a lot of questions regarding cardiac safety in athletes who were infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, so the first year of the registry uh, has been entirely focused on collecting important data regarding the cardiac testing and the cardiac findings in athletes infected with, with SARS-CoV-2. And it's just been an incredible endeavor. We've had um, multi-center participation from, from 42 sites around the country. It's been a beautiful collaboration between sports medicine colleagues and cardiology colleagues uh, around the country. Um, and as we presented at AMSSM, our study cohort was over 3,000 athletes infected with SARS-CoV-2. So really a credit to everyone who's uh, provided data. And I think a, a credit to the way um, the ORCA registry was set up and the aim of, of fostering multi-center participation. That's great. Thank you. 
So Dr. Harmon, early studies in the pandemic were showing myocardial changes in up to 25% of hospitalized patients and up to a 50% increase in outpatient cardiac arrest in the general population, which obviously raised a lot of concerns within our athletic population. And as Dr. Dresner said, that, that necessitated moving this ORCA study to shift our focus initially on COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2. And as you have well established in literature, uh, viral myocarditis has long been a known etiology for sudden cardiac arrest, even before COVID-19. So with your registry, what have you seen in your findings so far? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've seen that, that myocardial involvement doesn't happen nearly as much as we feared initially. And so if I can just take you back to maybe July as numbers were starting to go up and athletes were coming back onto campus. And um, although some of that, those early published studies didn't come out till maybe September or August uh, or even later than that, we were already hearing about it before that came out into the literature. As you know, that it takes a while for anything to actually get out there. And it was sort of frightening when people were talking about 25% of athletes potentially with myocarditis and some not having symptoms. And so, you know, we were at, at the time, you know, uh, all the conference medical committees were meeting, we're calling each other across the country saying, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? And we're just hearing rumors. And so that was uh, really an, an opportunity to get this uh, registry going and see what actually was happening because what we were hearing was frightening and contributed you know, to uh, several conferences pausing their activities. And, and I think what we found in this larger multi-center registry, which is really, I think, one of the keys, is that somewhere between 0.5 and 3% of people will have myocardial involvement. And that's not nothing, but it's certainly not the 25%, 30% that we were hearing about. Um, so very reassuring. And it's also very nice that um, it correlated with several other sort of studies that came out a little bit later. But I think the real beauty in this is that it is multi-center and so it reflects a broader experience than you can just get at a single center. Excellent. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really interesting that your results uh, mirror the findings that were published in March's JAMA Cardiology by Martinez and his colleagues on the 789 professional athletes that showed about a 0.6% of the population showing any sort of signs of inflammatory heart disease. So using your great study uh, published in circulation along with this and, and some of the others that are coming out. How are these studies impacting our approach now to our athletes as they return to play after a COVID-19 infection? It's nice that, that both larger cohort studies have similar findings. I, I think that's reassuring and it sort of validates both, both cohorts. You know, in the professional athlete cohort, you know, 0.6% had potential inflammatory heart findings, and in the college athlete uh, registry overall, about 0.7% um, had potential cardiac involvement. You know, the, there's some similarities between the cohorts. The, the majority of athletes had some form of cardiac testing. Um, most of them in the college athlete cohort had what we refer to as triad testing, ECG, echo, and uh, troponin. In the professional athlete cohort, they all had triad testing. Even despite doing that additional cardiac testing with, with a subset of athletes having cardiac MRI for, for clinical indications or for abnormal uh, triad testing, uh, still the, the overall prevalence of myocardial involvement was relatively low. And I think that's reassuring. In the college athlete 
uh, registry. There were some things and predictors that stood out for cardiac involvement. One of them was the presence of cardiopulmonary symptoms. Um, if you had chest pain, for instance, um, when you return to exercise, you know, that should be a caution flag that maybe there's, there's more going on. And in the professional athlete uh, registry, they um, identified moderate symptoms with the initial illness as a predictor of potential inflammatory uh, heart issues. And they define moderate as, you know, fever and flu-like uh, symptoms uh, for more than a couple of days or the presence of cardiopulmonary symptoms, so also that consistency. And so when we look ahead, you know, in terms of how these two studies may impact um, recommendations for cardiac testing in athletes who do have SARS-CoV-2 infections, I think the consistency allows us to say that the overall prevalence is relatively low, um, but, the, but the likelihood is higher in, in athletes with moderate symptoms or cardiopulmonary symptoms. So if, you, if you're an athlete who tests positive and has no symptoms, if you're asymptomatic, or an athlete who only has mild symptoms, you know, sort of like common cold-like symptoms, it's not clear you need any additional cardiac testing at all. And that's what our recommendations would put forth at this point, um, that those athletes who are asymptomatic or only have mild illness really don't need any additional cardiac testing. What they need to do is just have a good follow-up with their team physician and athletic trainer and make sure as they return to sports that they feel well, that they're not having recurrent chest pain, excessive, excessive shortness of breath or new palpitations or something like that. Um, and I think they can return to play without cardiac testing. That's really important because the utilization of resources across, across the nation to test competitive athletes before they go back to sport has been huge. And in the college athlete setting, I think it was 42% of our athletes were asymptomatic and another 25% had mild symptoms. So already you're talking about two thirds of athletes who don't need testing and still about a third that probably do need testing before they return to play. I was just gonna, gonna sort of throw in there. I think another um, really sort of interesting thing that came out of this is that we're unsure of really the significance of these MRI findings to sort of clinically. And when you MRI everybody, you find stuff. So future studies sort of looking at um, athletic controls and, and, and non-athletic controls, I think are important to really try and put a frame around what some of these MRI findings actually mean. Um, there were a couple other single center studies, one from Vanderbilt and one from Wisconsin um, that were later that also show this sort of similar amount of cardiac involvement that we found. I think that Vanderbilt study was 3% and the Wisconsin study was 1.4%. Um, and so sometimes you, you know, it, it's, it's nice to just um, reassure ourselves, but that isn't anything. And I think that the other lesson from this um, is, you know, we're very fortunate here at the University of Washington to have very experienced sports cardiologists be able to help us read some of these MRIs and, and uh, frame that clinically so that we understand better what it means and, and so I think it's important that, um, that, that people with expertise in sports cardiology actually take a, a look at some of these studies, the, particularly the MRIs. Kim, that's such an important point that you bring up that in the absence of symptoms, we really don't know what these MRI findings show. And I would argue that a lot of the MRI findings may be present in athletes who, who don't have recent viral illness and, and we don't really have good understanding what normal looks like in a screening cardiac MRI. And, and there really is a, a, 
potential risk for, for overdiagnosis and misinterpretations when, when you use MRI in that, in that setting. In the past, you know, myocarditis was a clinical diagnosis. You know, the athlete had to have symptoms, um, you know, fever, chest pain, et cetera, and then it fit with the cardiac testing that went with it. So in the absence of, you know, the, the clinical symptoms that would argue for inflammatory, um, you know, heart conditions, it's really hard to interpret what that cardiac MRI means. Yes. Yeah, so now, so based on these findings that seem to be a little bit more reassuring, what is your current recommendation of, do we, do we send these athletes for a cardiac MRI? Do we only send those if it's clinically indicated, if they already have like an abnormal ECG, echo, troponins, and then send them? Or are you doing that, you know, as opposed to a full run of the mill, let's get throw the whole kitchen sink at them. Are you yeah, recommending I, I, just waiting? I, I think that you're going to see new guidelines come out. Then it's going to be based on emerging data. Um, I believe that just Monday, the NCAA out, put out a new um, guideline. And in it, it suggests, as John was mentioning, that if people are asymptomatic or have cold-like symptoms, that they don't need any testing um, cardiac testing done. Probably checking in with a medical provider is good. If they have moderate symptoms, um, so fevers, body aches, things like that, or cardiopulmonary symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, then doing that triad screen is how uh, we're approaching it. And if that triad screening is normal, if those moderate or cardiopulmonary symptoms, then uh, we just return them to exercise and watch how they do. If anybody develops symptoms as they're returning to, to exercise, then they need a more a, a bigger workup. Um, so that might include a cardiac MRI. I actually think that a, a sports cardiology consult is uh, probably in order if you're going to do additional testing to figure out, you know, um, what exact additional testing is indicated, and then also as we're talking about sort of framing that advanced testing that we get. And so if you're moving on from more than that triad screening, if it's abnormal or if you're concerned because people are having additional symptoms, then it's probably time to bring in uh, people that are doing this more often as you sort of move forward. Um, and then, of course, if people are, are, have been hospitalized, they probably deserve the, the whole workup to, to begin with. Jeremy, I'd, I'd say that one finding from our study, you know, if you look at our cohort of over 3,000 college athletes, only about 300 had a cardiac MRI. Um, and most of those were for clinical indications, and some of them had a screening MRI. But, but we had about 2,700 athletes without a cardiac MRI who were mostly evaluated clinically, um, many of which had some form of cardiac testing. And we followed them for about four months, and, and re re even recognizing it's sort of short-term follow-up, but they didn't have adverse events. And, and, and that's really important that, you know, we're not seeing a plethora of adverse cardiovascular events related to uh, athletes who've been infected with SARS-CoV-2. And that's important too. So I think all in all, it's hard to justify using a diagnostic tool like cardiac MRI as a screening tool. Yeah. And I'll just, you know, take that a step further. Certainly we had 3000 people in our study that we followed for four months, um, but there's 8 million high school athletes and another 500,000 college athletes and uh, who knows how many recreational athletes and John and I and others, you know, very actively look for sudden cardiac death in all these populations to try and include them in different uh, registries and chase those down. 
and we're just not um, we're, we're not seeing people with sudden cardiac death necessarily from COVID. Um, and uh, so I, I think that that's just, again, uh, reassuring that it's, it's something we need to look for and follow, but it's not having horrible outcomes in our athletic population. Great. And that's super reassuring to hear for all of us taking care of athletes. Now, Dr. Harmon, one question I had for you was that we've been having these guidelines for a graduated return to play. So once they're, they're cleared, everything looks good, reassured. Uh, we've done the clinical exam, but we we've been recommending a slow graduated return to activities. As a, a team physician yourself, how have you been directing your athletes and your athletic trainers as they navigate through? And, and with your findings of this study, is that changing any of those recommendations? Yeah, so when we first started out, we kept athletes out of exercise for, for 14 days, basically, you know, and then we began a graduated return to play that was actually pretty closely supervised over a week. And as we've seen, particularly these people that are completely asymptomatic or have very, very mild symptoms, maybe for a couple of days, um, we're getting them back to exercise a little bit sooner, maybe seven days, maybe 10 days. We're pushing them a little bit faster. We have sort of a four-day return to play exercise thing. You know, I think the question that I haven't quite cleared up in my mind yet is if people get symptoms when they return to play, at what point is that clinically significant? If I put somebody back to return to play, they've been asymptomatic at 10 days and they're having a little bit of fatigue, is that really the time to sort of pull out all the stops and get a, a triad testing and cardiac MRI? Or is that just sort of part of the, the COVID illness and I just pushed them a little bit too quick and they need to get back sooner. And so um, I, I think that this is a uh, work in progress, but I think somewhere, you know, gradual return to play four to seven days, beginning somewhere um, at 10 to 14 days after play is, is what I've been doing and has so far worked pretty well. Dr. Dresner, anything to add to that? No, not really. I, I totally agree with Kim. I think most people agree that someone should probably be asymptomatic for some period of time before they begin to exercise after COVID. And I think most experts are, are still using about seven to 10 days. And I think this applies most to the individuals with more moderate symptoms. Um, but that's probably still holds true for the mild symptoms that you'd probably wait about seven days before they return to exercise. And that sort of fits with when their symptoms resolve, seven days go by, now they're finally out of isolation and they can have that supervised, you know, graduated return to exercise. Fantastic. And lastly, part of the aim of the CRN is to make research and scholarly activity more attainable for the general sports medicine community. And for many of us, uh, it's just seems like an overwhelming prospect to add to our already busy lives of clinical medicine or team physician coverage so to close, I wanted to ask each of you if you could just share how you find a balance and harmony amongst clinical practice, your team physician duties, research, and then still making time to have a, a personal and family life. How do you do it? First, I'll, I'll tackle the, uh, the sort of how do you do research and clinical practice first, because that's probably an easier question. And I think that research is like exercise in that um, you have time for anything you make time for. And um, you just have to prioritize it. And, you know, I, th I think a lot of us are, are very used to our people saying, I don't have time to exercise. 
And then there's the busiest people you know seem to fit it in somehow. And um, so it, it just needs to be a priority. If it's something you want to do, you just have to, at some point, just do it. And uh, sometimes great is the enemy of the good. And, and you think I need to do this great research project. And, and just sort of doing some research is just, uh, you know, it opens that door and, and, and helps you get there. In terms of balance and how do I balance, I am not sure that I have ever figured that out. Most of, most of my life don't feel very balanced. I feel like I uh, maybe do everything about 80% um, and always feel like I'm not uh, uh, devoting enough attention to one area or another in my life. But uh, I try to uh, give myself a break and maybe a little bit of grace and saying sometimes uh, good enough is, is really actually good enough. And so you do the best you can and, and try to enjoy all parts of your life. Good question, Jeremy, and, and great answer, Tim. In terms of a, a clinician who is interested in research, you know, I feel fortunate that the area that I research is something I'm, I'm passionate about. And I think for, you know, early career uh, researchers, for clinicians, even for our colleagues who are in academic institutions, you know, most research and scholarship is done sort of after hours and on your extra time very few places actually give you time and funding and support to go do the research. So I think you have to connect the dots that if you're really interested, you want to you wanna invest yourself in something that you're passionate about. And, and for me, the work in sports cardiology and prevention of sudden cardiac death for, in athletes has always been an area of great interest for me. And I feel fortunate that when I am working in those areas, it doesn't quite feel like work. <laughs> it feels like uh, just a goal that's ingrained and, and something that we're really passionate about. And our group at University of Washington with Kim and, and, and our other colleagues, it's really been a focus for us for a long time. So I feel very fortunate about that. You know, the, the Collaborative Research Network, the CRN, was developed to try to help our AMSSM members be engaged in research if they are not necessarily a primary researcher. And so I think this, this ORCA registry is a, is a perfect example uh, it is an example where larger, more meaningful studies can be done by engaging our AMSSM membership, those individuals who, who can contribute and be engaged, but perhaps maybe not be the lead, um, where you can now get larger data sets, multi-center data, more balanced data, um, and answer harder questions. And, and I think this is really just the beginning of a model within AMSSM that the Collaborative Research Network can lead where projects begin and AMSSM members with particular interests or perhaps a particular uh, patient panel can contribute meaningful, meaningfully to new knowledge and science and discovery, which I think is really exciting and, and can feel rewarding even if you don't have a ton of time to do it. So I hope that's uh, something that AMSSM members can engage with and something that the CRN is going to lead. In terms of balance, I'm going you know, I'm, I'm I'm to go with Kim that I think we're still trying to figure that out. You know, for me personally, I've always just try to prioritize, you know, my time with my kids and family, uh, work and exercise. And those are sort of my top three. And, you know, I think we're all still trying to figure out that, that balance between what we do at work even, um, and certainly that, that work-life balance and integration. Wow, awesome. Dr. Dresner, Dr. Harmon, I can't thank you enough of just taking the time to be with us today. I'm really excited about all the future cardiac discoveries that is going to come through ORCA. I think it's going to be a huge advancement to uh, sports and exercise medicine and sports cardiology. 
uh, as a whole. So thank you guys for investing your time to not only speak with me today, but also take it as you talked about trying to struggle through that balance of your own lives and investing that time to advance sports and exercise medicine. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Jeremy. And we'd also like to thank all the listeners. We hope you found this time valuable. And if so, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. I hope you'll listen to us again for the next edition of AMSSM Sports Medcast. And the views expressed are ours alone and do not reflect the official policy or position of the AMSSM, the University of Washington, the U.S. Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.